Well, good morning, Spring Valley Baptist. Once again on Sunday mornings, uh, uh, we, we meet uh, for worship by virtual means. I'm coming into your living room, your den, or maybe a kitchen, or wherever you gather to, to join in our worship. I'm appreciative of uh, our music that uh, Rick has added week by week, and appreciate those musicians sharing with us. And also, I, I want to express appreciation to Alan Knight, who's been uh, videoing all of these uh, sermons and the worship times. Uh, for us during this time, and they've done a great job, and I appreciate that, Alan, so much. Well, today uh, we continue uh, with the series that uh, is entitled Messy Relationships, and that's in your life group studies. And uh, we've been talking about some characteristics that God would want us as His children, His believers, those of us who follow after Jesus Christ as His servants, uh, to display in our life that hopefully the more we would allow these characteristics to be a part of our lifestyle, we could avoid creating messy mistakes and messy relationships, or we can use these character traits to help clean up some of these messy uh, relationships. So thus far we've talked about love and how we should love and how that can prevent messy relationships. We've talked about uh, encouraging and encouraging one another and how that can prevent messy relationships. Last week we talked about forgiveness and the need to forgive and that then we would set parameters around that action so that hopefully we could uh, keep that from happening again and creating another messy relationship. Today uh, we're going to talk about uh, serve or service. That's the, uh, that's the word for today that describes the character trait uh, that God wants us to have in our life to prevent some of these messy relationships that we find ourselves in. In your life groups, your study will focus on Galatians 5 and 6. And we'll talk to you then about uh, serving one another uh, using spiritual gifts and sharing one another by uh, serving one another uh, by sh uh, sharing one another's burdens. Uh, but, but rather than just duplicating that, as I've done a couple of weeks, uh, I, I wanted to go in another direction, but deal with that whole concept of serve, service, and serving, uh, and look at an incident in the life of Jesus uh, with, uh, with two of his disciples and the mother of those disciples, and, and how Jesus defines for us this whole concept about serve and service and how we see it modeled in his life. So, Jesus shows us in his life his greatness by his servant heart. And that's what we're going to see as we uh, unwrap this passage of Scripture today. But I want to preface it by quoting Luke 22:27, where Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. He said that to his disciples shortly before he went to the cross, and they had seen that. And that was Luke's uh, account uh, of this incident that we're going to read in Matthew. There's another account in, in Mark's gospel of this same account, well, a little different uh, uh, list of, you know, the characters and who actually comes to Jesus about the request that we'll see being made about greatness in the kingdom of God. And that's what we entitle in this today, greatness in the kingdom of God. And, and here's, the, here's the nutshell of what we're going to say today about service and greatness in the kingdom of God. And that is that greatness in the kingdom of God is determined by our level of service to others. The greatness in the kingdom of God is determined by our level of service to others. And the model for that, of course, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we find that displayed for us in a powerful way 
in the scripture that we will reference today out of Matthew's Gospel chapter 20 and we will look at verses 17 uh, through verse 28. Uh, so here's the setting for this. Uh, Jesus is just uh, uh, less than a week away from going to the cross and being that perfect sacrifice for us. He knew that that was why he came to earth and he's less than a week away. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he knows what will take place when he gets to Jerusalem. And so we find him introducing that to the disciples. And it's introducing to them in this setting, but actually it's the eighth time, at least the eighth time that he's told them what these things are that are going to take place. So we read these words. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. This is at least the eighth time that he has told them this. And then you fast forward and you think about what happened after Jesus was crucified. None of these thoughts came back to them. He had told them eight times and they didn't remember it at all after his crucifixion and burial. And the tomb discovered empty on Easter morning. They were hard to believe. But eight times he told them that. And then right on the heels of that, here comes the mother of two disciples with pretty much a very um, a selfish request that she makes because she asked for places of greatness in the kingdom of God for her two sons. She was perhaps a loving mother, but a little overbearing, over the top in this situation. So as soon as Jesus had talked about the fact that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be mocked and, and flogged and, and all that's going to take place to him and then ultimately be crucified for us, all of a sudden then, verse 20 says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, and that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked him a favor. At least she knelt down before him to ask this question. He said, what is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now what a request that she would make. After Jesus had already talked about his humility and laying down his life as the sacrifice, here she comes and asks for greatness in the kingdom for her sons. And so Jesus goes on by saying, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So Jesus talks about drinking from this cup, and he talks to them about the fact that, yes, you are correct, that you will drink from that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But then the scripture goes on with this account by saying, When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus telling them what he's going to do with his life in service for them bookends this incident. It begins by Jesus telling them we're on the way to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. Ultimately, I'm going to lay down my life as a sacrifice. He ends the section of Scripture by saying, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus displays for us the concept of greatness in the kingdom of God through his selfless service and the generosity of his life. So, let's break down this passage of Scripture, this incident, and, 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 and do so with the backdrop of greatness in the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say to us about greatness in the kingdom of God, and how does that tie in with this concept of service? Well, first of all, Jesus teaches us that we just might be called upon to suffer if we follow Him. We, we might have to suffer if we choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Certainly, we go back and we look at the New Testament. We look at the early followers of Jesus, and we know that that was true of them. Jesus put that in, in terms of drinking from the cup to the two disciples, James and John. And he asked them if they were capable of drinking from the cup. He said to them, you, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And we can, they answered. And then Jesus gave an affirmation to that. And he said, yeah, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. In other words, greatness is not for me to grant. Those places belong for those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, when Jesus was asking James and John, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? They perhaps envisioned some ornate, a beautiful golden goblet that they might be drinking from. But Jesus had another cup in mind. He was talking about the cup of suffering that he would drink from before he would go to the cross. So if we fast forward from this event to a few days, we find that Jesus knows the time of, of His betrayal, His arrest, His torture, and His crucifixion is fast approaching. And we find Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Scripture says that going a little farther, He fell with His face to the ground and, and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as You will. I've had the privilege of going uh, to the Holy Lands and going to especially to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I have knelt and prayed as what's called the Rock of Agony, where it is believed that Jesus knelt and prayed on that night in agony. And it's Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 44, that tells us that He was in agony, and in such agony that the Bible says that Sweat drops of blood appeared on his forehead, light sweat. And, and, and as he looked into that symbolic cup, he saw what would cause him suffering. He knew that he would be stretched out on the, on the Roman cross and that there he would die. He knew something about the physical suffering that he would undergo. But I think the greater suffering that Jesus knew that he would undertake would be that he would be suffering because he was the perfect sacrifice 
taking on the sins of the world. And all of that filth and all of that impurity tainting his body and soul for the first time in his life. The only time. And so he knew that it would be a cup of suffering as he became that suffering servant on the cross dying in our place. Now, what did he know and what did he mean when he said to James and John, yes, you will drink from that cup. They didn't know what was ahead of them, but Jesus did. And then according to Acts 12, James was the first of the 12 disciples to die for following after Jesus. We're told that Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, had him arrested and then beheaded uh, by a Roman soldier. And he drank from the cup of suffering, did, did James, and was the first of the 12 disciples to be a martyr. For John, it was a little bit different. Uh, John kind of drank from the cup a little by little. Uh, he lived in a time under a terrible emperor, uh, Domitian, uh, who tried to execute John by by boiling him in oil, and somehow uh, that didn't kill him. That somehow uh, John was, was able to survive that. And then he was exiled on that small island of Patmos where he received the revelation from Jesus, and he wrote for us that great book of revelation that we have. And then uh, history tells us that after Dominion died, Domitian uh, died, that then John came back to Ephesus, and the legend is that he lived there until his death somewhere around the age of 80. So James drank from that cup of suffering one, in one big gulp. John took several sips out of it symbolically before he died. And there's a reminder to us there that we just might be called upon to suffer. We might in the places where we live and where we're sent to serve, we might have to suffer for Jesus' sake. Now Peter writes to us in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16 and, and reminds us of that when he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, I don't know if we really know what persecution is in, in this, here in America. That, I, there may be some of the, some of the means out there in society are rising up against the church and Christianity more than ever before. But I don't think that we know what persecution is like some of our brothers and sisters know it around the world, that they literally do give their life in defense of the gospel. Uh, Dustin Binge is uh, the uh, new provost of Union Theological School in, in South Wales. And I follow him on Twitter, and, and this is something he, he uh, sent out on Twitter uh, er, earlier this week. And he talked about suffering, and he talked about persecution, and he said, Until the government rips our Bibles from our hands, arrests our pastors for preaching the Word, bulldozes our churches, enacts laws against worship, and kills us in the streets, stop whining about persecution while sitting at home in your pajamas. And I would say that's something we need to hear. 
We might be called upon to suffer. You might have a little bit of persecution. You might have a little bit of ridicule maybe at school if, if you dare to stand out as a believer. Maybe you're overlooked for a promotion at work. Maybe you're ostracized at work and you're not included in that group when they're telling jokes and talking around the water cooler or the coffee pipe. But I don't think we really know the extent of persecution that our brothers and sisters know in other parts of the world. Certainly we don't what the disciples went through. But they were willing to endure that as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and to show us that true greatness comes when we're willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost, even if we have to suffer and endure persecution. Then the second thing I think that Jesus teaches us here through this incident is that greatness in the kingdom of God belongs to those who serve. Jesus said greatness belongs to those who who serve. Jesus said in verse 27, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And now when I say that word slave, when you hear that word slave, what comes to your mind? Well, if you're thinking about uh, the atrocious slavery that was in the antebellum south, uh, get that image out of your mind. Even if you're thinking about the horrible human trafficking that's happening around the world, you can forget that image. The word for slave that's used here is doulos, which means bond slave or, or bond servant. And in many of his letters, the Apostle Paul identified himself as a doulos or a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And the background comes from the Old Testament life where a slave was under obligation to work for a master for six years. But then in the year of Jubilee, the seventh year, he could be released from that. But if the servant ha had found uh, favor in the home and the family of the slave owner, the master of the house, and he was treated well, and he fit in with the family, he could decide to voluntarily stay on and work for the master and be a bond servant or be a bond slave in a voluntary servant role. That's the role that the Apostle Paul said that, that he took as a doulos or a bondservant. And he knew what that was. In Romans 6, 18 he says, uh, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That is, you've become a bondservant, a doulos to righteousness. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave, a doulos, a bondservant, to everyone to win as many as possible. See, Paul was a voluntary slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he served his master by serving others for one reason. And that one reason was to win people to the kingdom and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, when Jesus talked about the fact that we must be servants and we must serve, and, and the greatest among you will be he who serves, you know, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. What does that look like? What, what, is that, what does that service look like from that servant? Well, I think Jesus gives to us the best example. In everything, he is the, he is the best example that we could have. But I think in, in John 13, as John gives us his recorded scene of what happened in the upper room on the night before Jesus was crucified, is not the 
the pattern that we see in the other Gospels of celebrating the Lord's Supper. But it's a different scene that they have after the Passover meal. And so we find in John 13 uh, how uh, they were preparing for that Passover meal and the gathering together of the disciples and how Jesus displays for us this concept of, of selfless love and servanthood. Beginning in chapter 13 verse 3, the Scripture says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around His waist. After that He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. As the disciples began to gather with Jesus in that upper room to celebrate the Passover, there was one element of that gathering that was missing, and that is that there was no servant there to wash the feet of the disciples as they came in for the meal. You see, they would bathe and dress before they came for the meal, but they would walk usually in like open-toed sandals along the dusty roads at the place of destination. And so the feet would become dirty and dusty. And that's why a slave was normally there in a household to wash the feet of the house guests for a meal. Nobody was there, no servant, no slave was there that night to wash the feet of the disciples. And none of the disciples volunteered to take on that role. But the Lord Jesus Christ did. The Scripture says through John's account of that, that Jesus laid aside His garments and He took up a towel and a basin and He washed the feet of His disciples. Now you get that picture in your mind. That this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the Creator of the universe. The first of all creation and the one who holds all things together. And he humbled himself to the role of a servant, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Now, the emphasis for us is not so much that we're supposed to wash the feet of other people, but that we should be willing to serve them. It was not beneath the dignity of Jesus to wash the feet. He willingly did it. Now listen to the rest of the story. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, Jesus told them what greatness in the kingdom was, that it was service. And then he modeled it for them. It may be one of the most demeaning ways that he could have done. Taking on the role of a house servant on his knees with a basin and a towel and washing the feet of his disciples. We too must learn that lesson of humility. That we must possess a servant's heart and be willing to serve others. 
and doing the most menial task in service for the kingdom of God should not be beneath our dignity. It wasn't for Jesus. It wasn't also for Dawson Trotman, who was the founder of the Navigators, who on one occasion was visiting Taiwan on one of his overseas trips. And during the visit, he hiked with the Taiwanese pastor back into some of the remote villages in the mountains to meet with some of the national uh, Christians. And the roads were wet and covered with mud, and their shoes logically became very muddy on that trip. Later, somebody asked that Taiwanese pastor what he remembered most about Dawson Trotman. And without hesitating, he said, he cleaned my shoes. Now, what happened to this pastor's surprise was that the next morning when they got up, he expected to have to put on his dirty, muddy shoes. But instead, Dawson Trotman had arisen before this pastor, and he took the time and the effort to clean the shoes, the muddy shoes of this pastor so that he wouldn't have to go out that day in dirty shoes. That's the legacy that Dawson Trotman gave to the navigators and that he leaves for us because he was a bondservant, a doulos of Jesus Christ, and he lived with a servant's heart. And when you live with a servant's heart, then you serve. And Jesus said, that's the mark of greatness in the kingdom of God. And then I think the third thing that Jesus teaches us in this story is that he calls us to humble servant leadership. We talk a lot about leadership and how important it is. But it's interesting that leadership is mentioned a few times in the scripture and disciple is mentioned hundreds of times in the scripture. I think Jesus is combining these two when he talks about being a humble servant leader. You see, James and John were the product of misdirected ambition. In Matthew's account, it's, it's their mother who comes and asks for a place of greatness for her sons. In Mark's account, it's, it's James and John themselves who come to Jesus and ask for that place of greatness in the kingdom. And Jesus teaches them that they are the product of misdirected ambition. They focused on their compensation, that is the place of greatness, rather than their contribution, which would be service. Um, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen in the fall about football, whether college football or NFL football, either one is going to take place. A lot of rumors about that, a lot of speculations because of this coronavirus going around. But the, uh, the, the NFL draft has taken place, and the number one player taken was uh, Joe Burr, the quarterback on the national championship team to uh, LSU, Louisiana State, Bayou Bengals. Now, interestingly, he was drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, imagine while he goes to negotiate his contract, if Joe Burrow would say something like this, that I want a guaranteed starting position, I want to be the highest paid player in the league, I want you to name me the league's most valuable player, and when my career is over, I want you to retire my number and promise me a spot in the Hall of Fame. Now, can you imagine that quarterback, Joe Burrow, saying something like that? And what do you think would be the response of the owners and coaches of that team? You know, I think they might maybe say something like, well, hey, let's see you go through uh, training camp. And, and let's see you make it to be the starting quarterback as a rookie. Let's see how many passes you can complete. Let's see how many games you win your first year in the league. And then we'll talk about your Hall of Fame eligibility. Uh, that's the mistake that James and John made. 
They had petitioned for a prestigious position of power, wanting to be among the elite in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to them, in effect, that's not how it works. Greatness is not found in a job title, but in a job description. And the job description of a servant in the kingdom of God is leadership through humility and sacrifice. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's fulfilling what Jesus said in Luke's gospel when he said, I am among you as a servant. Jesus came as a humble servant to give his life as a ransom for many. You go back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, the prophecy of that suffering servant who would come. And upon him, all the sins of the world would be laid. That's talking about Jesus coming as a suffering servant, the, the, the selfless servant who would come and lay down his life because he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Napoleon Bonaparte, I think, captured an important truth when he declared, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded empires. But upon what do these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions would die for him. And that's entirely true. Napoleon had that right. Because it's out of love that Jesus came to serve others, and out of that love and service that he established his kingdom, and why we're devoted followers of his. It's because of his sacrificial acts of love and mercy and grace. Even Genghis Khan once said, a man's greatest work is to break his enemies, to take from them all the things that have been theirs, to, to hear the weeping of those who cherish them, to take their horses as his own, to hold in his arms the most desirable of their women. Uh, that raider, and the talks, what raider of, of evil, Genghis Khan's definition of greatness was to dominate and conquer one's enemies. And that's probably not too far from the, the business model that's in our country today. It's like a businessman or a businesswoman saying, I can't be satisfied with anything less than 100% of the market share. That I'm not in business just to make money, I'm in business to, to crush the competition. You see, in the ruthless business world today, there is that attitude typically associated with greatness that says, I've got to have it all, and I've got to crush my opposition. But in the story today, and when you consider the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus introduces a completely different model. We find that greatness is not determined by how many kingdoms you conquer and how many people you rule. But greatness is determined by how well you serve. Genghis Khan said that a man's greatest work is to break his enemies. But the Bible teaches us that a believer's greatest work is to bless his enemies. Jesus taught that in Matthew 5, 44 in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. And it's not just our enemies that we're supposed to love and serve, but one another. The Apostle Paul in our, in our life group lessons for today, in Galatians 5.13 says, serve one another in love. 
And Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. And Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get. And we make a life by what we give. I think in essence, that's what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying that God's purpose for your life involves serving others, especially if you know that you are a committed, dedicated follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand that kingdom work, real ministry, it's not a quest for greatness and glory, but it is a desire to serve in the same manner that Jesus our Lord served. Martin Luther King once said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the the second law of thermodynamics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. How true those words are. And whatever God has called you to do in life, He has also called you as one of His followers to serve. And in serving others, you will discover your greatness. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, you haven't lived until you've done something for someone who can never repay you. In Galatians today in your life groups, you will consider what it means to bear one another's burdens. And there are just countless practical ways. It was listed in one article that I read this week about ways you can, during this, this time, share others' burdens. And you could, like, fix a meal for a neighbor. Babysit the children for somebody who just absolutely needs to get out for a while. Clean the house of somebody who's incapable of doing that. Maybe they're recovering from surgery, or they're just not able to do that, living alone on their own. You know, you could take somebody's car to get their oil changed in. You could mow a neighbor's yard, and that list could go on and on and on. Those are ways you can bear the burdens of others around you. So Jesus taught us humility and service, and he modeled it. So here's the challenge I have for you for this week. How will you complete these two statements? Number one, I can be great as a servant this week as I, and you fill in that blank. And the second one is, I can be first as a slave this week by, and you fill in that blank. So here's the seven day challenge to you. Try to turn every encounter, even though you keep your social distance wherever you might be, keep your travel limited, but in every encounter, whether a neighbor, a family member, somebody at a store you have to go into, every encounter, try to turn it into an opportunity for service in some kind of way. And if you do, you will find that you are far more blessed when you give than when you receive. Jesus Christ tells us what greatness is in the kingdom of God, its service. And then Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our teacher, he calls himself in this passage, shows us what it is to be a servant. Actually, he performed a menial task of washing the feet of his disciples and then ultimately He went to the cross as the suffering servant and died, drinking from that cup of suffering 
the physical pain, the spiritual anguish has became the sin for all the world so that you and I might not die in our sins but be allowed to have forgiveness of our sins so that we could become a servant in the kingdom of God. May you be a servant. May you be great in the kingdom of God. Fathers, we bow before you today. We thank you for that, that humble servant, your Lord Jesus Christ, uh, your son who came to earth to serve us, who was willing to lay down his life. He knew that was his mission, and he came to do that, and he did it in humility. Help us, Father, as believers in Christ and followers of Christ and as members of your kingdom to live with selfless service as the priority of our life. And that by doing so, we will emulate Jesus Christ to a culture that needs to see your love and your mercy at work. Father, we want to achieve greatness as we serve you, all for your glory, through Christ our Lord. Amen.